So sweet, we are in the book of Judges this morning. If you got your Bibles, you can turn to Judges chapter 17, and let's pray as we come to God's Word. Lord, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for our ability to uh, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ over the internet and into homes and into hearts, Lord. We pray that it would penetrate into hearts and into lives. And so, Lord, we're thankful for your word this morning. We pray, God, that your spirit would just break the bread of the word before us, Lord, that, that uh, scripture would unfold to our hearts and minds this morning, that we would have understanding, that we would grow in insight of ourselves and of you, Lord. And we ask your blessing as we learn about Jesus this morning. And so we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Judges chapter 17. I would say this, we've just spent a number of weeks going through the story of Samson. And in a lot of ways, the account of Samson's life and and ministry is kind of the end of the story of Judges. So you're like, what? Wait a minute, we're not done the book. And that's exactly right. We're not done the book, but uh, the story of the Judges is over. Now what we've got is five chapters that are left. There's no more Judges. Samson was the last guy. And this book closes with two narratives, two accounts. So we're going to look at the first one this week. Next week, we'll look at the second one, and then we'll be wrapped up in the book of Judges. And uh, so it's Judges 17 and 18 are one story. Judges chapter 19 to 21 are another story. And I would say this, I mean, especially next week, for me personally, I would account next week's story among one of the most disturbing stories in all of the Bible for me personally. So just to give you that heads up, it's like, we're going we're gonna to look at these stories. And really what's happening is this, is as the book of Judges closes, the theme of this story this week and next week really comes down to this statement from Judges chapter 17, verse 6, that it says this, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So now as we wind down in the book of Judges, what we've seen is, well, what we've seen is this. We've seen this constant cycle in and amongst the people of Israel. We've we've called it the wash, rinse, repeat cycle. This cycle of rebellion against the Lord and then the Lord sending a nation to oppress his people. And then Israel in their experience of oppression, crying out to the Lord. And then God raising up a deliverer, a savior, a judge to come and set the people free from their oppressors. Now, what we've watched happen through the book of Judges is this, is that with each judge, things have progressively gotten worse. The hole has gotten deeper. They've dug themselves in deeper and deeper into their idolatry and into their sin. And now that we've come to the end of the story of Judges, the book closes this way with these two accounts these two stories that take us down onto ground level in uh, amongst the people of Israel to give us insight and to show us what was it like? What were the things that were going on amongst the tribes of Israel? And what we get here is like two case studies to show us where the nation was at in their rebellion against the Lord. Now, uh, I would say this, you, you've probably, unless you've been to Israel, actually, if you've been to Israel with us, you, you can be excluded from this statement. 
But you've probably never heard anybody preach on Judges chapter 17 and 18. It's probably a good chance. And definitely not Judges chapter 19 through 21. But I got to say, I, I, these are not feel-good stories, but I love these stories because this is a spot that I teach on when we go to Israel. So I got lots of you know, heart memories attached to some of these stories and great times with uh, God's people. And so look at Judges chapter 17 and 18. This is, this is a look at human beings acting in rebellion against the Lord. And in fact, as we're going to see, God is barely even mentioned in these stories. And whenever he is mentioned, it's like with a really skewed, messed up concept of who he is and what he is doing. So, you know, with all those things said, I got to tell you, I love these stories. These are great Bible stories because, you know why I love them? Because I love the word of God. I love the word of God. So there's great stuff in here. Let's check it out. It says this in verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim. Now, actually, just let me pause for a second before I even read any further, okay? Just, just uh, this story has a very similar beginning to that of the book of Ruth. You know, Judges closes, and Ruth is the very next book in the Bible. And Ruth is also a story of what is happening on the ground and amongst the children of Israel. Remember Ruth, Naomi and her family, they leave Israel and they go live amongst the Moabites. And it, and it shows us the story of how God is implementing his rescue plan. So we've got actually three stories in a row here that show us the hearts of God's people. But this is the first one, okay? So here it is. Verse one, there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. Okay, so here's what's going on. You got a mother, you've got a son here, and the mother's savings are stolen, 1,100 pieces of silver. Now that's a lot of money because in around this time, Probably, you know, the average person's annual salary, their annual wage was about 10 pieces of silver. So you got 1,100 pieces of silver. This is her life's saving, her retirement. It's a significant sum of money that is stolen from her. And so she does this. She utters a curse against the thief. And her son hears the curse that she utters against this thief. And it just so happens, he's the thief. The son has stolen the mother's savings. And so fearful of the curse, he confesses that he has the silver. Mom, I got it. It's with me. Now, J. Vernon McGee said this. I like this. He said, at this point, the mother probably should have turned him over her knee and applied the board of education to the seat of knowledge. I like that line. The board of education to the seat of knowledge. But instead, she's so happy that this huge sum of money has, has uh, reappeared. She blesses her son in the name of the Lord. This is weird. Now off the hop, what I want you to see is this. This is a dysfunctional family. They have weak character. You got like two verses in, they're stealing amongst family members. There's uttering curses. There's failing to bring parental discipline. There is no challenge to this man, Micah, to examine his heart. Uh, he's never questioned as to why he stole the silver. Okay, so let's read on. Verse 3, it says this. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, 
I dedicate the silver to the Lord from, from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. There, now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So now I read this and I go, wow, this is getting weirder. It's getting weirder. The mother dedicates the returned silver to the Lord so that her son can take it and he can make images out of it. What the heck, man? This is the children of God. This is the people of Israel, the chosen people of God. People who know the commands of the Lord that the Lord has clearly instructed and taught them from his word that they are not to make graven images or idols. But this is exactly what they do. Verse 4. When he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, verse 6, very important verse, you should underline it. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Okay, the story gets weirder. Here's this mother, her 1,100 pieces of silver are returned to her. She commits it all to the Lord, but then what does she give to the Lord? 200 pieces. She holds back and keeps for herself 900 pieces of silver. And this whole scene is messed up, man. Like, you got to just see this, okay? Warren Wiersbe said this. He said that this family, with their actions, has almost broken every single one of the Ten Commandments already. They haven't murdered anyone yet. But, you know, father and mother have not been honored. There's been lying. There's been worship of other gods. I mean, it's just on and on and on. This whole scene is messed up. And this man, Micah, now that he has these graven images, establishes a shrine in his house. He makes an ephod for, that's what the priest would use for consulting God. For consulting these images of God, he makes an ephod. And there are multiple household gods, we read. And then he does this. He installs his son as the family priest. This is why it says there was no king in Israel and everyone did as he saw fit in those days. Now you think about this, the people of Israel had a place of worship. They had a house of worship. They had a tabernacle where God had ordained worship. They had this tabernacle where God had established a place for sacrifices to be offered. Where God had established a place for priests to serve. The children of God were to go, the people of Israel were to go to the tabernacle to worship God. And the priesthood was confined to the family of Aaron, Moses' brother. There was a lineage of of priests. And then there was the the tribe of Levites. They were to assist the priests, to teach the word of God, and to assist the priests in the function and the operation of the tabernacle. And so Micah, this man, he ignores all of that. He sets it all aside. He establishes his own shrine. He installs his own son as a priest. These are human beings, followers of the living God who should have known better, and they are acting in open rebellion against the Lord. Now, let's check it out again here. Verse 7, now there was a young man of Bethlehem and Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. 
And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm, going to so- and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levi went in. Okay, so now Now what happens is this, we're introduced to a new character in the story, a rogue Levite. Again, Levites were to serve in assistance to the the house of worship, the tabernacle, where the sacrifices were offered. The Levites had had the job of teaching the word of God to the children of Israel. And there were actually, the Bible tells us, we saw this way back when we were in Joshua, the Bible tells us that there were designated cities for the Levites to live in so that they were sprinkled amongst the children of Israel. Well, this man is from, he's a Levite, he's from Bethlehem. Bethlehem is not one of the Levitical cities. So he's already living somewhere there he's not supposed to be. And we're going to find out in the next chapter that this man's name is Jonathan. So I'm going to call him by that name, Jonathan. Now, Jonathan tells Micah that he's looking for a place to serve. Now, the problem was he had started out in Bethlehem where he never should have been in the first place, and now he can't, he, he, he can't find a place of his own, and so he's, he's wandering from place to place, town to town, area to area, and, and instead of serving God, uh, he finds out that Micah is looking for someone to serve in his house and he's a priest, he's a Levite, so, so Micah installs him as his priest. He hires him to be a priest. And, and Jonathan is a Levite, but he is not eligible to be a priest. I just want to point that out. He's not eligible. So, I mean, what do we got here? We have got a scene of moral and spiritual chaos happening amongst this household. All of these actions, they're in contradiction to the word of God. Everything that's happened so far is not lining up with God, what God has taught his people. People are doing whatever they want. And, and the problem with people doing whatever they want is the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth, has, he has revealed himself through his word. Yahweh is not discovered or experienced through human reason, through human experience. He has revealed himself, the living God has revealed himself through his word. That's why we love the written word, because the written word leads us to Jesus Christ, the living word. And in God's word, God directs us, he teaches us, he instructs us in what it's like to worship him, what it's to look like how we're to approach him through his son, Jesus Christ. We don't, we don't get to worship however our hearts direct us or whatever we think is cool or whatever suggestions might come to us. Worship is directed by God in the word of God and not by human ideas. You know, Israel was taught, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. 
But these people have departed from the word of God. They've conveniently shaped worship to look like what they wanted it to look like. And, you know, this is really a picture of what it's like for a society to do whatever it wants. In those days, there was no king. Every man did as he saw fit. Might look spiritual. This house of Micah might look really spiritual. There's a shrine. You know, there's a priest. There's carved images and idols fashioned by human hands according to their personal preference. But he is not worshiping the living God. And so it's wild what we see going on here. And I, it just makes me think of the New Testament. You know, I'm so glad that we have Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that in these days, God has spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And the son is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation or imprint of his nature. And Jesus upholds all of the universe by the power of his word. And Jesus has made purification for sin. Jesus has sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. When we talk about worship and approaching God, it's through the person of Jesus, the savior of the world. Only in Jesus Christ is there blessing. Only in Jesus Christ is there rescue from sin and from death. There's no other way to the father. Now, I think about this man, Micah's house. It's a spiritual mess. Let's read what happens. Verse 11. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as my priest. What? The Lord will prosper you? No, man. You're, you're acting in disobedience. And it's interesting. What we see here is that all of Micah's efforts, everything that he has done so he confesses is to get the Lord to bless him, to get God to be good to him. You know, this is what religion is always about. Religion is always about getting access to God. How do I do things, work, whatever, to get God to bless me so that God will be good to me, so that I can twist his arm and get him into my favor so that he'll bless me? You know that true faith is exactly the opposite? The true faith is about giving God access to you. True faith is not about getting access to God. It's about giving God access to your heart and to your life. It's about giving him your heart so that he can get what he wants. Do you know what God wants? God wants you. He wants a personal relationship with you. That's why he sent his son, Jesus. He wants you. He wants nothing to separate you from him. No sin to be in the way. He doesn't want you to try really hard and make your own path to him. He wants you, and he wants you to know that he has made a way for relationship with you, and it's through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And this is an important difference that we need to understand between what Micah is doing and what needs to be the reality. See, what Micah is doing is religion. I'm not a fan of religion. Say, so you're, well, you're a pastor, don't you? You're religious. Look at I don't want to be religious. 
See, religion is about getting God to serve you. How you twist his arm and get him to serve you. Faith, a faith relationship with God is about, uh, is about you serving God. Religion is about God serving you. Faith is about you serving God. We want to be men and women who serve God, who serve him. God is the one in control. And, and he wants to fill you with his spirit. He wants to fill you with the Holy Spirit and give you life. That's why we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And the tragedy about religion is religion always does this. Religion always reduces God down and makes him smaller and smaller and smaller so that we can twist his arm and make him serve us. Religion always reduces God down into something that can be controlled. It's an image that can be picked up and carried like Micah made. Religion has a very small view of the God whose arm it's trying to twist. We want to be men and women with a big view of God. And so we say, God, I'm not trying to get you to serve me. In faith, I come to you to serve you. Now let's read on. Chapter 18, we read this. In those days... There was no king in Israel. This, here's this theme continuing. I want to underline that. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the story goes on. And now another piece is introduced into the story, the tribe of Dan. Now this is Samson's tribe. This is the tribe that Samson came from. And it, the text tells us, again, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Each man was doing as he saw fit. Now, the tribe of Dan was looking for an inheritance to dwell in. Now, that's a bizarre statement because what, what you mean they don't have an inheritance? Didn't the Lord give them an inheritance? Can't we turn in our Bibles to Joshua chapter 19? What would we see? That Joshua drew the lots? And he, called, he gave an inheritance to the tribe of Dan. Dan had an inheritance. It had been given to them. Their tribal allotment was on the sea coast of the Mediterranean, the Great Sea. They were, they were down and towards the Gaza Strip there. That land belonged to them. And their land stretched from that beautiful beach there along the plains of, of the ocean up into the foothills of Judea. It was theirs. But rather than taking the inheritance God had given them, the Canaanites who lived in the land were strong. Dan hadn't been able to drive them out. And the Canaanites had pushed Dan back into the foothills of Judea. The beautiful coastline, they could just see it from the decks of their house. Going, Boy, I wish we had life on the beach down there. And then the Philistines had come and the Philistines had entrenched themselves in the area. And Dan was a tribe. Dan was a tribe that faced constant contention with the enemy. They were always having to deal with the enemies of God's people. And I would say this about Dan. I think where Dan was positioned as a tribe was very strategic on the part of the Lord. He had put them on the front line. They were the first line of defense against the Philistines. That's why Samson was so important. They were on the front line, the first line of defense. But rather than fighting for their God-given inheritance, 
Rather than fighting for what God had given as their own inheritance, Dan began to look for another inheritance. I would say this, Dan despised the inheritance of the Lord. So they looked for their own inheritance. And I think it's so tragic because God had put Dan where he had sovereignly decided in his will. He had placed them. He had given them a land. He had called them to fight against the enemies of God's people and to lay hold of their inheritance in him. But instead, they said, we don't like this. We drew the short straw. We don't like that we're we're constantly fighting the Philistines and constantly living in contention. And we're tired of this fight. So verse 2 says this. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the number of their tribe from Zorah. Now Zorah, that's Samson's hometown. He sent them from Zorah and from Ashtaol to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and they lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite, Jonathan. Remember Jonathan? And they turned aside and said to him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, this is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me and I have become his priest. Okay, so just getting this picture. Dan sends out, the tribe of Dan sends out five spies to look for a new inheritance because they don't like the portion God's given them. And they end up at the house of this man, Micah, who has Jonathan serving as his priest. Remember, Jonathan is serving as an idolatrous priest. He has an idolatrous ephod. He's idolatrous images. He's not a true priest. He's not truly seeking God. Verse 5. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Man, this is a load of garbage. This is a heap of garbage. It's trash. Inquire of God. Inquire of God for us. But God's already assigned you your inheritance. Go and take hold of what God has already given you. But what do they say? Inquire of God. And rather than speaking the truth, Jonathan pronounces peace and blessing on these five spies. He doesn't say you're running away from your God-given calling. You're running away from the inheritance. Turn around and go lay hold of what God has given you. And he says, yeah, go in peace. God has blessed you on this journey. But the truth is they were in disobedience. But this priest, Jonathan, he's nothing more than a hireling. He's not going to speak the truth. He's going to tell them what their itching ears want to hear. Now verse 7. Then the five men departed and they came to Laish. And they saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting. Lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, 
and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. So they find this city, Laish. The Sidonians are there. They're people who are living north of the land of Israel. So imagine this, maybe in your mind's eye, that the, the tribe of Dan lives down to the south, the southwest on the seacoast. They've traveled all the way up through Israel into the central land of Israel, and they've gone north above their inheritance in the Lord. The, the land of the Sidonians was not promised to the children of Israel. So they've gone outside of what God had given the children of Israel. It says in verse 8, And when they came to the, so now they returned back to their brothers in Samson's hometown. Verse 8, And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtaol, their brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise, let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. Wow, you listen to this description, and it just sounds like a wonderful place. I mean, this is the kind, it's almost as good as living on the Sunshine Coast. This is the kind of place where you want, you, you want to live. Except this, God had not given it into their hands. This was not God's gift to the tribe of Dan. It was not their inheritance to take this land in the north. They would have to leave their inheritance. They would have to leave their inheritance to the Lord to take this land from an unsuspecting people. Now verse 11 so 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtaol, and they went up and camped at kirath Jerem and Judah. On this, account, on this account, that that place is called Mahanadan, means camp of Dan to this day, behold, it is west of kirath Jerem, And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim, and came back to the house of Micah. So now the tribe's journeying together. They've got 600 men of war. They're making their journey north. They come back to this house of Micah on their way to take this new chunk of land. Verse 14. Then the men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image. Now, therefore, consider what you will do. And they turned aside, and they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now, the 600 men of the Danites armed with their weapons of war stood by the entrance of the gate. What a scary scene here. Ah, greetings. Nice to see you. How are you doing? Verse 17, 600 soldiers. And the men who had gone to scout out the land went up and they entered and they took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image while the priest stood at the entrance of the gate with 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, 
Keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. It is better for you to be a priest to a house. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image, and he went along with the people. This is mayhem, man. This is total insanity. As each man does as he sees fit. The tribe of Dan go into Micah's house. They steal all of his shrine stuff, man. The images, the ephod, all of this stuff. And Jonathan, the priest, Micah's priest, speaks up. He says, what are you doing? And they say, be quiet. Why don't you come with us? Wouldn't it be better to serve all of us? Look at this. All of this, a whole tribe. Serve this tribe rather than just one household. This is a big promotion for Jonathan, man. He's moving up in the world. False prophet, false priest. Moving up in the world. Why wouldn't he turn it down? And so he goes with them. Verse 21. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. Now, this is interesting to me. Quite the interesting picture. They depart from the house and they put the, the, the children, the, the wives, the livestock in front, and the army travels behind. Rather than the men leading their families towards their inheritance, they send the wives and children first, and the men are in the back because they expected to be attacked. And it just makes me think, you know, all I could say is this. When you are expecting to be attacked from behind, you're probably going in the wrong direction. When you're expecting attack on the back, you're going in the wrong direction. Now, verse 22. Can we turn that fan off? Verse 22. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men, thank you. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, you take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. And what have I left? What have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? So here's Micah. All his hope has been stolen. It's all been taken. His idol gods, his false priest. He's a religious man rather than a man of faith. And now he has nothing left because he never had a relationship with the Lord. Got nothing left. You know, it makes me think of David, who in contrast said this. He said, where can I flee from your presence? Where can I flee from your presence, Lord? You know, the concept, the idea being, look at everything could be taken from me. I could have everything or it could all be taken from me, but where could I flee from your presence? Because I have a personal relationship with you and you know me. But that's not Micah. It's not him. He never had a relationship with the Lord. Got nothing left here now. Verse 25. And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. And the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. You know, it makes me think this, that in the end, 
Self-made religion always, man-made religion always leaves a human being disappointed. It'll always leave you disappointed. You know, whatever we make into our God, whatever we fashion in our religious works to twist the arm of God and to get him uh, to, to small enough that we can worship, whether it's money or power or relationships, the gold, the girls, the glory, it will not deliver. Like imagine, what if it's all taken away? Imagine the things that you have, how God's blessed you, your home, your savings, your family. What if, what if like Job, it was all taken away by someone stronger? What would you say? I have nothing left. Or would you be like David? Where can I flee from your presence? You know, when we find Jesus, when we find personal relationship with Jesus, what we find is this true blessing. Like when you give true happiness, when you give your heart to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ can never be taken. A relationship with him can never be taken no matter what happens on the external outside circumstances. But for this man, Micah, a religious man rather than a man of faith, it was all taken. Verse 27. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and they struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer. That's an interesting line right there. There was no deliverer, judge. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon. And they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. They rebuilt the city and lived in it. Now look, at we have to call what Dan did here as what it is. This was a murderous rampage. This was not what we have seen previously in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, we've seen a, a lot of war, a lot of death, but we've been able to say this all the way through, that this was a judicial sentence from Almighty God against the enemies of God. The judges were acting as that, as judges delivering God's people from their enemies, uh, muting out judicial sentence of the Lord, God appointed these judges that we've seen, they were Holy Spirit-filled. They were led of the Lord. But this, this is cold-blooded murder. This is the murder of peaceful, unsuspecting people, women and children. It's sin. Verse 29. And they named the city Dan. After the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel, Jacob, who was born to Israel, but the name of the city was Laish at first. You know, this is sick. I just have to say that. This is sick. You know, the name Dan, when Dan was born to Israel, he was named Dan. And the name Dan means God has judged me. It meant, it meant this, that God has made a decision in my favor. He's looked upon me and he's made a judgment and he's made that judgment in my favor. 
You know, when God judges, it can be a good thing. But when God judges, it can also be a very frightful, fearful thing. It can be a good thing when God judges us and he sees us in the righteousness of his son, Christ Jesus. But it can be a frightful thing when he judges us and he sees us in sin and he condemns us to death. Dan, I would say this was naming this city Dan. It was like a subconscious acknowledgement of their guilt. Did you know this? That if you were to turn to the book of Revelation in Revelation chapter 7, you will see this, that the tribe of Dan is missing in the list of the 12 tribes of Israel. They are excluded. In Revelation chapter 7, Dan is missing and Levi is put in Dan's place. That's crazy to me. That is crazy to me. I'll comment on that further. Let's read on to the end of the chapter here. It says this. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Danites until the day of captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he had made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. This is crazy. What we see happen here is that in this city, Dan, there was a rival priesthood set up to the true priesthood. The priesthood belonged to the descendants of Aaron, brother of Moses, his sons, the line of his sons. That's to whom the priesthood belonged. But who do we see here? We see Jonathan, the son of Gershom. He is the grandson of Moses. I want you to catch this. This is crazy. The grandson of Moses and his sons set up an idolatrous rival priesthood against the Lord in the city of Dan. This is wicked. And it's shocking to me. I mean, it's shocking. We think the grandson of Moses. The scripture shows us that Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. That God spoke to him face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Moses received the law of the Lord and taught it to the people of God. He delivered them out of slavery. And his grandson, his grandson set up a rival, idolatrous priesthood against the Lord. You know what's crazy about that? It just makes me think this. How quickly faith can be lost. How quickly from one generation to the next faith can be lost. A parent can serve and their son can serve and a grandchild can be long gone from the kingdom of God. You know this, we say this, that God does not have grandchildren. God only has children. He does not have grandchildren. He only has children. And it's shocking to consider that Moses' grandson became the spiritual leader of apostasy in Israel. That's what it was, apostasy. Individuals in apostasy, families in apostasy, an entire tribe apostate. 
They had departed from a faith relationship with the living God. The city they built, the city of Dan, became an Israelite center of idolatry. When we go to Israel, that's what we tell you when we go to Tel Dan. Those of you who have been there, we went to Tel Dan. We said, this is a center of idolatry amongst the children of God. This is one of the cities where Jeroboam set up one of two golden calves and instructed the northern tribes not to go to Jerusalem, but to come and worship at the golden calf. This is a center of idolatry that has been established. And it all began with the tribe of Dan despising their inheritance in the Lord and walking away from it. And it's shocking that one generation knows the Lord, knows the gospel, the next generation assumes it, and the third loses it. It's that easy. And if you're watching, you know, this morning, and I don't know, you know, where you're at personally in your relationship with Jesus Christ, but I, I have to tell you today, and it's important that you hear this, your life has to be centered on Jesus Christ. We, we have to seek to be those who worship the Lord in spirit and truth, not who form our own religion and bring God down and make him the size that we want so that he will serve us. No, we're men and women of faith who offer our lives in service to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Our relationship with Jesus has to be one centered on faith rather than religious works. And for it to be a relationship of faith, it has to be about us serving Jesus, not him serving us. Jesus offered himself for us. He came as the servant of all. He came to save us from our sins and from ourselves, and he gave his life on the cross. And the scripture says, we love him because he first loved us. We offer our lives in service to him because he first served us. You know, kids, I want to speak to you this morning. Maybe you're sitting and you're watching with your parents today. Maybe your parents are elderly and you're sitting and watching them. Maybe you're young and you're sitting and you're watching with parents. Listen, kids. God has no grandchildren. If your mom and dad serve Jesus... That's not your in into the kingdom of God. You have to have your own personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and you can have that by faith. Kids, you can invite Jesus Christ into your heart and into your life. You can say, Jesus, I want a relationship with you. I want to know you. I want to walk in faith with you. Jesus, I give you my life. I got to warn you. If you're trusting in the relationship of your parents, if you're just watching your parents and their relationship with God and you don't have your own personal one, you are in danger of being like Jonathan, the grandson of Moses. You need to do business with the Lord. You need to give your heart to the Lord. You need to love God and know this, that God first loved you. That's why you love him. It's not about being religious. It's about having a relationship with the living God, this is a crazy story to me. And I want to leave you with just three points of application this morning. Three points that I think that this 
story drives home to us and they're important for us as followers of Jesus. The first one is this. You need to love truth. You need to cultivate a love for the truth. You know, I think about the tribe of Dan. Dan did not want to hear the truth. They despised what God had given them. And then when they sought God's will, they just got their ears itched and they were told, yeah, go, go. It's all good. Go do whatever you want. They didn't love truth. We need to be men and women who love truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. To be a man or woman who loves truth, you have to be a man or woman who loves Jesus, who loves the word of God. Don't get your itching ears scratched. Ask God to cultivate into you, to grow inside of your heart a love for the truth of God. The second thing this this story tells me is this. On the path of least resistance, you will pick up idols. That's what happened to Dan. Dan said, we don't like what God has given us. We're going to take a path of lesser resistance, an easier road. We're going to take the wide road rather than the narrow road. And as they turned from what God had given them and they chose the wide road, what happened is this. They picked up idols along the way. They picked up a false priesthood to their own destruction. Jesus said this, that wide is the path that leads to destruction and narrow is the way that leads to life and few find it. And on the path of least resistance, you will pick up idols. Listen, I just want to say to you, rest in the place where God has put you. You know, maybe you're right now, you say, God, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm constantly in spiritual battle. I don't like this. I don't like where you've put me. And and you're feeling tempted to uproot your life, to to pull out of your marriage, to pull out of your work, maybe to move and leave this town, to to flee somewhere else. You say, I don't like what, what I've got right now. Look it. Trust the Lord. Learn to fight. Don't, don't take the path of less resistance. Say, Lord, how can I faithfully serve you right where you've placed me? God, I want to learn the lessons of here. I want to do battle for the kingdom of God. Change me. Transform me, God. I, I don't want to turn and take the easier road and just begin to pick up idols in my life and be led astray from serving you. On the path of least resistance, you will pick up idols. So stay on the narrow road, church. The third thing is this. Break the back of selfishness through prayer. I think about this tribe, about these individuals, every person, they were just seeking their own good. They're seeking the selfish desires of their own heart. Turning, like I said, from from the, the narrow path to the wide road that leads to destruction. And the way that we break selfishness in our life is this, is that we become men and women of prayer. We intercede on behalf of others. We pray for our enemies. That's what Jesus said. Pray for your enemies. That's an unselfish act to pray for your enemies. It's an unselfish act to pray for those who hate you. It is an unselfish act to pray for those who don't know Jesus. Break the back of selfishness. By becoming a man or woman of prayer. You know, when I say pray for your enemy, I remember this. That I was God's enemy. 
That God counted me as his enemy. God counted you as his enemy. Maybe even right now in your life, you are an enemy of God. Well, I want to tell you this, that the Bible says this. While we were still yet sin in sin, Christ died for us. Sinners are God's enemies, and yet God loves them so much that he chose to become sin. Jesus became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. God wants to bring you into relationship with him. And, and, and part of that is that we become men and women of prayer to break selfishness in our hearts and in our lives. Prayer. Prayer. You know, I want to encourage you to come to prayer tonight. We're meeting at seven. You know, our nation needs us to be praying. Our community needs us to be praying. This week, I just be, continue to be disturbed about the things I hear going on in our country. You got Bill C-7 going before the Senate on Thursday. It's increasing um, the expansion of euthanasia in our country. It'll remove the 10-day waiting period for someone that's requested euthanasia. They can have same-day service. Same-day service. It will remove the need for witnesses to be present. In our country, our government introduced this week Bill C-21. They've put all the focus on firearms and handguns and all this stuff, but what they wrote into that bill, what people are not talking about, what is written into that bill, is that in that bill... Uh, freedom is given to the police so that they will no, need no warrant to enter your home. No warrant to enter your home. And the warrant, the, the, the need to enter your home isn't just for firearms owners, people who have handguns. It's for any reason whatsoever that they deem necessary. They'll be able to enter your home with no warrant. It's an erosion of freedom. We look to the east to our brothers next door in Alberta. And there's a pastor in prison. In prison this week because the judge made a condition upon his release that he not preach. And he said, I won't sign those conditions. And he's remained in custody. We look across the country and the state has worked to you know, break the legs of the church, so to speak, to stop us from gathering, to stop us from Worshiping to stop us from corporately coming together. Our, our, our country is like the tribe of Dan. Like the house of Micah. There are hard, hard days ahead. And as a people of God, we need to be breaking the back of selfishness in our own hearts and lives. Coming together to pray. And so tonight at 7, we're going to be here to pray. And I encourage you to come. To come and join us. Maybe you need physically for us to lay hands on you and to pray for you. Maybe you have issues going on in your home that you need prayer. But church, I'm encouraging you. Come and let's pray. We have this great text of scripture. It's an awesome story. I love it. And it's full of warnings. Does Jesus have your heart? Does Jesus have your heart? And so this morning, I just say to you, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit 